Hello and welcome back. It's Binyamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpachah's home front. Hello, Binyamin. Hello, Gedalia. It seems like politics is starting to take over the military once again in terms of what's important in the news. Both you and I have been following the discussion about a new draft law that uh, the government has to come up with sometime in the next month or two if the attorney general has her way to replace a law that expired a year ago. And there's a couple of aspects that need to be discussed, Vidalia, because one of it has a direct bearing on whether there's going to be a draft of haredim, of draft age, and if so, how many could possibly face the draft. But the bigger issue, I think, as far as the Israeli society and the army is concerned, is the law of service. We know that a year or so ago, they cut mandatory service for men by four to six months, and now they want to go back to three years of mandatory service. They also want to increase the age at which people can continue to serve in Milawim. And that's what really started the whole thing, because when people decided that, when the politicians decided, okay, we've got to increase the service, and we have to increase the amount of time that people will serve and increase the numbers, then they said, okay, what about the Haredim? Ariel Kahana did an article in the Israel Hayom about a week or so ago, and he noted, now Ariel is from the National Religious Camp, and he's for a Haredi draft. He mentioned that in his article. But uh, what he also said is that when they talk about manpower, there's at least 300,000 people who were eligible for Milawim who weren't called up during the cycle, despite the fact that we're on full war footing. So he says, what about them? We also need to, uh, if you're going to look for every available piece of manpower, you have to look everywhere. And he made an important point too. Again, not to deflect the whole discussion away from what's really key for us as a radio society, but he's 100% right. You have to look in other places as well. And I think that it has to be recognized that this is really a straight and analytical issue. This is a deeply emotive issue. And it becomes complicated by the fact that some of the biggest, most sympathetic non-Haredi sectors of society, you might say, the natural partners of the Haredi community on the political right, as for example, the traditional Jews in authority, Jews who very much respect the Rabbonim and they respect tradition, they are the kind of backbone of some of the, they believe in and are highly motivated to join the army and they believe in the army as something which is a core part of their identity. You can see that in action. If you look at a debate on Channel 14, which is the kind of Israel's recent answer to Fox News, it's very helpful to look there to understand the shape of the Israeli right. And I was saying the recent debate led by Magal, very high profile on his Patriots talk show. And this is a person who is pro-Haredi and enjoys sticking it to the liberals who don't like the Haredi. And yet the overwhelming tenor, as you can saw by the audience response there, the live audience in the studio, was anyone who said, no, we've got to draft the Haredi now. And we respect the Torah, we respect learning like that. So you have to understand this is tremendously emotive, especially so amongst those who are the natural allies of the Haredi community. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of skill to maneuver through this issue. I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that I do believe that the government is taking the right approach. Now, they are under pressure, as I mentioned at the outset, from the Attorney General and from the Supreme Court to come up with a new law at the end of April to settle this. I don't see how you're going to settle a 75-year-old debate in uh, one or two months, especially when we're in the middle of war. Yoav Galan last night announced that as defense minister, he's not going to uh, present the new draft law unless he knows that there's consensus. So the instant analysis across the board in the media after that was that he handed the initiative to Benny Gantz and he empowered Benny Gantz to be the one to decide, okay, 
I'm for whatever compromise we come up with and I'm going to go along. So far, we haven't heard anything specific from Gans other than to say that he would encourage the Haredim to enlist in the army and it would be a zakut for them. It would be a merit for them to do. Then Yara Lapid announced that if you guys are reluctant to come up with a bill as part of the government, then me as head of the opposition, I'll introduce one next week. And if you're Zionist parties and you're really Zionists, then you'll vote for my bill. So maybe politically on his part, that was a smart move, but I don't think it's going to get anywhere. So again, you're not going to solve in two months with an artificial deadline, something that has been a matter of debate for 75 years and a follower and a voter for the Haredi parties. Obviously they don't need my advice. They take counsel from the Rabbanim and the Gedolim and they'll follow their Eitzah as always. But I am concerned personally, again, as a voter, about the idea that the Haredim might topple the government over this issue in the next month or two. I think that's something that they have to also debate very carefully because my feeling is, and I've written about this in my column, that we have absolutely no idea what the political constellation is going to look like going into the next election. There could be so many new parties and so many combinations that we haven't even thought of. We've talked about the Miluin, but you know, the reservists coming back and just taking their idea straight from the battlefield into office. This has happened before. Yeah, that's one possibility. The liquid splitting into two. Which way is Guido and Saar going to lean? Is he going to come back to the right-wing camp? And is Benny Gantz really as strong as the polls look? I personally don't think so, because I don't see, when I read the left-wing secular media, I don't see that there's a lot of support for Gantz. They feel that he's basically a center-right guy, and fine, he might be an opponent to Bibi, who the center-left despises, but I don't see that they're going to get behind Gantz. My sense is that uh, the Haredim would probably get a better deal out of the current government than to take the risk of going to new elections and to then be at the mercy of whoever's going to be forming the next government who have cut them out entirely. So again, this all remains to be seen. It's unpredictable at this point. But again, as a voter, that's my concern. I would rather go slow and not rock the boat and panic and say, you know, we got to do something. Otherwise, we're all going to get drafted. It's not going to happen. The government, the police, the army, the Mishmar Agavul, they're not going to come into the yeshivas and raid them. And if there is a cutback in funding for a certain period of time, maybe we can find our own Joan Gottesman, who just donated a billion dollars to Albert Einstein Medical School so that tuition could be free. Maybe we can find the same type of donor in uh, the Haredi world to help out the Kolalim and other yeshivas short term. But I want a couple of thoughts about that. Actually, you've just mentioned it. Why did we go straight oh, Ruth to Ruth Gottesman. I'm sorry. I said the Joan Gottesman, my mistake. Ruth Gottesman is her name. Okay. So the point being, I mean, that why don't we go straight to her and say, listen, she's a lady of many billions. I'm sure she's not a billion short. So someone's going to make out the shortfall. Can I just a couple of final thoughts about the draft this year, which is that I've seen as a observer here for the last 20 years, in the country, it's clear that only evolution is going to work, not revolution. Anything that causes any outside attempt to coerce, which is interpreted as coercive on the Haredi world, is going to cause the circling of the wagons effect. We've seen this so often. Politicians or particular a group pressures Israel, whether it's on schools or at the high court or whatever the particular issue is. If you come and are perceived as coercing and attempting to bend the Haredi world arm behind its back, it will cause a circling of the wagons effect. That's what happens. Then everyone rallies around, and that is the surefire way to kill any reform. Any gradual incremental change is to attempt to revolution. It's got to be evolution. That's number one. That's exactly what happened with the judicial reform, and that's why it failed, according to some people. My feeling always was the government should have just pushed everything through as fast as possible and made it a fait accompli. But 
uh, the conventional wisdom, and it could be they're more correct than I am on this, is that, like you said, they try to go too far too fast. They try to make a revolution, not an evolution. And as a result, it failed and it caused tremendous turmoil. I'm happy to hear you make that point because that's something that I think needs to be brought up by the media and also by the Haredi Haveri Knesset, that, that you're taking a big risk if you're going to try to ram something through very quickly. Agreed with you. And just one final point on that, which is that, as you mentioned, you have got up, the defense minister got up and one of the things he said was, if there is no physical existence to the Jewish people, there'll be no spiritual existence to the Jewish people. And that's why we need a big army, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where this comes down to it. It's such a clear, neat way of putting it. If you ask the Gadol Yisrael, they're going to say they're going to take that framing and just invert it to say there's no spiritual existence, no physical existence. And so it's an absolutely clear division. So between the materialism and the spiritualistic ways of looking at things and navigating to the two is going to get very, is, is at the heart of this issue. But you know, I think we can move on to talk about a slightly different issue, which is Yichia Sinua's survival strategy, as reported in the Wall Street Journal. The report today is that they said that senior members of Hamas's leadership in exile met in Qatar earlier this month. Looking the facts in the eye, they said they're getting destroyed on the ground by Israel's military offensive. And it says then a courier arrived with a message from Yechassuna, where the head of Hamas and Gaza, saying, in effect, don't worry, we have the Israelis right where we want them. And the upbeat message said, Hamas's fighters were doing fine. The militants are ready. Israel's expected assault on Rafas, which we talked about over here. High civilian casualties, the paper says, would add to the worldwide pressure on Israel to stop the war and then conclude that Sinwar's goal is for Hamas basically to emerge from the rubble of Gaza with a political victory by just being standing there, outlasting Israel firefly and therefore be in a position to claim the leadership of the Palestinian national cause. And Benjamin, you know what? I say he's right. He's absolutely right. If there's a minion of Hamas terrorists at the end sitting there in their sweat-soaked undershirts, toting Kalashnikovs and RPGs, and in a position to say, here we are, we survived, they will have won. Therefore, it's the job of Israel to resist US pressure to, to stop Israel achieving total victory over them. That reminds me of the Yom Kippur War where Israel ended up after a some reverses in the first two or three days, they ended up about 100 kilometers or 60 miles from Cairo. And nevertheless, Egypt celebrated this as a big victory because of the first two days where they made some progress and they were able to cross the Suez Canal. But that gave Anwar Sadat enough of a lift for him to take the bold measure of suing for peace, if you will, and coming to Jerusalem and addressing the Israeli Knesset. But he basically took a grab victory out of the jaws of defeat, so to speak. And that's exactly what the Sinawar is trying to do right now also. And you're right. In a way, he's right. Look, it's very hard to defeat ruthless people like that. And it's a big risk for us to end up looking like the losers because every year, and I have to say that when we first made Aliyah, and that's 30 years ago, I was really shocked at the Israeli take on the Yom Kippur War because having gone through that as a young American, a teenager, to me, it was a smashing victory for Israel, even though we had reverses in the first couple of days. But we won, and we ended up with more territory than we had before the war. And again, like I said before, we ended up with the tanks on the road to Cairo. We could have marched further if it weren't for Kissinger and Nixon saying, you better not do that. So to me, it was always a victory. But when I came here to Israel, I always heard about what a tremendous defeat it was. And we saw that up to this year, Gedalia. And I think that's one of the things that emboldened Hamas to attack on Simchus Torah, because we went through this 40th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War with all of the chest pounding and all of the berating ourselves for 
having lost a war that we actually won. And uh, I don't know what it is about the Israeli mentality, but this is something that we need to cancel out. And we need to be able to uh, declare victory and we need to be able to uh, use propaganda to our benefit also. I agree that everyone's perception can shape reality in this. And very much so, it's going to be the case in trying to keep the Americans on board. And indeed, with assessing where American public opinion is, which is crucial now on this. And this week, we've had a report on that matter. We've had, when it comes to American public opinion about this conflict over here, so we've had a kind of a, a debate happening over the airwaves between Bibi and Biden because Biden got on NBC's late night with Seth Meyers and on Monday night. And he said that basically he named names, he named Ben Kaveri, he said Israel has had the overwhelming support of the vast majority of nations, but with this, he said, incredibly conservative government they have, and he mentioned Ben Kaveri, they're going to lose support from around the world. And basically he was indicating even further, uh, even more clearly that the Biden people under the pressure of the American left and the Arabs and Muslims of Michigan, et cetera, and eyeing the elections in November, they are really trying to shut this war down and keep talking about the day after, despite the fact that we're still on the day before. So that was Biden. But Bibi fired back in a message in Hebrew, which didn't mention Biden, but he quoted a Harvard-Harris poll that showed that more than 80% of those responding to the U.S. Um, supported Israel more than Hamas in the current conflict. And Saniel said this gives us more backing to continue the war until the final victory. Those are, that's the Biden and then the Bibi response. And then we have one more stage with Yamin, which is Barack Ravid, who's obviously with very left-leaning journalists, very well-sourced Axios, who said, but a recent AP NORC poll, whatever a NORC poll is, showed that 50% of U.S. adults surveyed in January said they believed Israel's action has gone too far. That was up from 40% in November. So if you take these two together, I think there is deep and growing reservations about Israel's actions. And yet, overwhelmingly, Israel is being favored over here. So I think Netanyahu is correct in saying, hold on, you, Biden, maybe look at Michigan, you maybe look at Israel's, you maybe look at the Democrats, but overall, Americans are behind us. So we saw an example of American politics and the influence of the Israel-Gaza war on that this week in the Michigan Democratic primary, where the Arab-American community fielded what they called an uncommitted slate. And they had set a goal of getting 10% of the vote and telling people, instead of voting for Joe Biden, who we know is going to win the primary, but instead of voting for Biden, cast a vote for uncommitted. And that will be a protest vote to try to show Biden that he's supporting Israel too strong and he needs to change course. So the uncommitted vote ended up being, at the time we're speaking, only about 95% of the vote is in, but the uncommitted slate won 13% of the vote. So they did better than the goal that they set for themselves. They've also been awarded two delegates. We have to look out for the Democratic Convention for who those two delegates are going to be and what kind of noise they're going to make. This is going to be a factor going forward. I think other states will be emboldened to uh, do the same thing. Now, I was watching John King and CNN, and he was saying, we have to be careful here because we can't assume that all of this uncommitted vote was a pro-Arab vote and anti-Biden. It could also be that uh, there are people who uh, just think Biden's too old and too frail and that he needs to step down. But this is a new trend, and we have to see how it plays out in the rest of the primaries. We normally reserve the end slot for a bright spot. But the truth mm -hmm. is, I think this week's bright spot is simply going to be me having a bit of a laugh even if it's on a serious topic, which is to do with a serious item. So we have the last couple of days, an open letter from over 50 broadcast journalists representing the big networks, Sky, BBC, ITV, CNN, ABC, MBS, NBC, and CBS, rather. 
and they wrote an open letter to Israel and Egypt demanding unrestricted access to Gaza for foreign media. They said, well, almost five months into the war, foreign reporters basically been denied access except heavy censored and escorted trips to the Israeli military. And we urge the governments of Israel and Egypt to allow free and unpetted access, etc. And then you had this delicious quote from the BBC's Middle East editor, who's quite notorious in being an anti-Israel slant. He says, Jeremy Bowen said on Radio 4, that's in, in Britain, I can only surmise that Israel is not allowing reporters to work freely inside Gaza because the soldiers are doing things they do not want us to see. And really, it's like one of these easy shots served up when you're playing tennis that you can't, you can't resist the, to smash it. So here it goes. I mean, I can only surmise that if you are fair and balanced in reporting, not quoting bogus stats from Hamas around the health ministry, nor reporting a few hundred dead in an IDF strike on a Gaza hospital, when in fact only a few died and it was because of Palestinian missile, then you will get access because Israel has enough, nothing to hide. We just can't afford your balanced reporting. So with that off my chest, being able I can go into a joyous, healthy Shabbos and wish the same to you and to listeners everywhere. <laughs>